Hello, welcome to Richard Chains' Leicester Square Theatre podcast. I'm not at the Leicester Square Theatre right now, I'm here in the nerve centre of my office. This is where all my crazy ideas come from. They don't, that's not where I get them from, it's where they come to. And then I write them down on the computer that I'm currently talking to you via. That's how it works, but I can't tell you where they come from. I can just tell you where they are right, and it is here. This week's episode is sponsored by Deville Film. Deville Film make fab films from broadcast to music videos, documentaries, adverts, corporate projects, or a lovely little online promo for that independent coffee shop you run with a marvellous selection of cakes. I think that's just an example. I think they'll do it for any business you have. They've been very specific there. It might be, might, well, I don't run a coffee shop. Can I use them? Yes, you can. They've made a list. They've made a mistake of making a list. They'll do what? They'll do a film of any kind for anyone. Not like that. Not that kind. You disgust me. Uh, we'll make the most of your budget and even buy the first round in the pub. Probably. Uh, go to www.devilfilm.com. Drop us a line today. Starting your message with the code Rahalastapa to receive ten percent off your film with us. Not bad, eh? What else do you want? The moon on a stick. Uh, don't forget also, you can come to the Leicester Square Theatre to see me performing my run of 12 shows. You've missed the first two, but uh, this weekend, it's mentioned there, 12 shows, August the 7th. Uh, the second weekend is uh, 12 Tars of Hercules Terrace and someone like Joggart. They go on, go to leicestersquaretheatre.com or richtain.com and you can read all about those. Do come along and support me if you can. Support Deville Film, they've been fantastic. Uh, and they have brought you along with the people who contributed to the Kickstarter campaign. They have brought you this episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. Please welcome a man who plans to build a dry stone wall during this show. It's Richard Herring! Wow, God! They're so much better than the cunts we had in last week. They were awful! They were terrible people. Uh, so welcome to Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre Podcast, or as some of the cool kids are calling it, Rahal Uh It's lovely to be here. Um, I promised this audience that uh, I would give away... We had these uh, mugs, uh, the Rahal Astapa. Uh, good, well done. Andy McH was first in, as, as you'd expect. Uh, it was. Uh, these were made for the Kickstarter campaign, so thank you very much to everyone who uh, paid enough to get one of these. Uh, they have been sent out already. The rest of the stuff is in the post. It should be with you by now, God would hope, but it's taken me a long time to make the T-shirts. I haven't st- I've got to draw, draw around my hand, hand, I think, 900 times. <laughs> I haven't started doing that yet. I don't, I don't know how long that would take. Um, there's a very good chance I won't write my new show or learn any of the other shows because I'm drawing my, my own hand on a piece of card. I have to wait for the special bits of card. They're going to be very special. But we made 99 of these and only about uh, 50 of them were given out to Kickstarter. So we're selling them at the at the theatres. And then as I was saying to the people here, these will be worth a lot of money on eBay because a lot of you out there will be jealous. of It says, uh, hot drink for a cool kid on there. Uh, very good. Uh, so um, I'm going to give one of these away free. I have a question for the audience. The first person who gives the correct answer will win this literally priceless mug. <laughs> It's priceless. Uh, what day is International Wazak Day? <laughs> Pardon? Wednesday. No. Uh, no. 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 Uh, even Andy McH says, my, my, it is March 9th. I don't think you can have a second answer. I'll give it to Andy McH. It only seems fair. March 9th. I thought there'd be some Richard Herring fans in. I was wrong. There he is. Look. How happy are you with that? I bet you've got one anyway, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> The worst possible thing. Uh, <laughs> worst person it could have gone to, but you can put that one on eBay. 
Oh, you've got some friends you can give that to. There's, you, your friend, no, you haven't got any. No, I'm forgetting it's Andy McH. He hasn't got any friends. Are you friends with Andy McH? Yeah. 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 Uh, do, you, do you know him, Andy? Yeah, okay, that's all right. Yeah. I just thought it was a guy going, yeah, I'll give it a go. Okay, he seems like a nice guy. Look at that. You wouldn't want to be friends with this guy. Look at him. What's your name? Twan. Twan. Oh, I know you from off of uh, Twitter. I always imagined you were a woman. Uh, so... Uh, <laughs> Oh, you could, you could be. I don't know. Well, are you? If you are, you might be a woman, and then I've made a terrible faux pas. <laughs> but uh, you're a pretty ugly woman, uh, and but a very attractive man. Uh, nice to meet you. I'm slightly scared of uh, Twan. So, uh, what do you what do you do for a living, Twan? You're a business analyst. Yeah, I've got a few of those in. Any any? What's the best business you've ever analysed? Your dog's business is good. Look, look at that. Look at, look at, I just want the people at home to see how happy he was with that joke. It's prob probably, his probably his dog's business. Bit like business, like poo. It's good. It's, even the audience are funny. Even, even the audience are funny. So the next day, when I was, at, I was away for the weekend when we recorded this. Uh, it was last weekend now. Uh, and uh, we went to Tring. Had a... Had, had a day, and my, my daughter's usually a very good sleeper, but she didn't sleep at all. Well, I got too drunk after this play that I went to see, and of uh, my own play, uh, and, uh, and I didn't, I had about one hour sleep, so that wasn't good. Uh, my wife managed to go swimming, and then we were kind of go, we said, oh, it's not, it's, this hasn't been very good. It hasn't really worked out here in this hotel where they're accusing us flushing nappies down the toilet. Uh, so we said, we go to the station and maybe have a coffee at the station and, and in the town. But the, the Tring station is a mile and a half out of Tring, which is very inconvenient if you live in Tring and there's nothing there. My wife needed to go to the toilet. There was no toilet. There was nowhere to have a coffee. And there's five minutes to the next train. So we thought, well, let's, we'll just put you on the train and then you can go home and I'll come home later. Uh, and uh, I, I looked at the thing of platform three uh, and we had to carry the pram down these big steps and got it. we got it down there. That's good. Uh, and we got down there and I looked at it and said, oh, that's, it says this train's going to Milton Keynes. That seems to be uh, the wrong direction. And it turned out uh, we were on the wrong platform and then watched our train pulling pulling away and then had to walk back the mile back to the hotel because <laughs> well, yeah, my wife knew the toilet there was nowhere to go to the toilet uh, and with this, it was quite a bad weekend all in all I said to my wife, you know, this, this, I know this hasn't been a very successful romantic weekend, what with us not getting here, me forgetting that we had a child, uh, being accused of flushing nappies down the toilet and having no fun. But, you know, we should be laughing about this kind of thing. This is, didn't find it very funny, but uh, hopefully, hopefully by now she will do. So will you please welcome my guest uh, for today? I nearly forgot to do this. I just did this very quickly backstage. He's probably best known as one of the writers of the film Razzle Dazzle. That's why, that is why we're all here tonight to see. <laughs> it seems like I've made a good choice. Will you please welcome, it's Robin Inch, ladies and gentlemen, Robin Inch. Come in here and sit down, Robin. There you have to sit there, use that microphone. Um, Razzle Dazzle was actually quite big in Turkey, so <laughs> fuck you, Richard Herring. There were many posters around the London Underground, but unfortunately Sony, the releasing company, forgot to actually put it in cinemas in London. 
What was it? I don't remember Razzle Dazzle. Oh, I'm very surprised. You're obviously not a fan of that particular genre. <laughs> um, it was uh, Ben Miller starred in it, yeah. and it was about a, uh, a choreographer who teaches a group of kind of uh, 10 to 12 year olds, and he wants to be the greatest choreographer, but he also wants to change the world, and so he does choreography about animal experimentation and stuff like that, and they all have to imagine their, their rabbits being tortured. And uh, then there's a very keen mother who really wants her daughter to be famous around the world and she says if, we, if I have to dye her black I have to dye her black we might have to do that for the American market so it's that kind of film yeah. so you can see why it went with the Turkish market but not so big in, uh, in the rest how of the world get, how did you get involved in writing that was it your idea um, it was uh, no it was uh, for, I'd been writing a movie about wrestling uh, I know this is uh, I, I've been writing a film about wrestling uh, with my friend uh, Darren and uh, he we'd, we'd finished writing the film about wrestling which it turns out we hadn't and uh, his wife had written a very uh, a short story like a page and a half story uh, about where you think you're uh, basically in the mind of a child who is in a dance competition and then realise that in fact it's a mother who, when her child fell on stage, got up and just joined in with all the children while they're terrified <laughs> of this, this kind of dance. And I said, that would make a good film for the Turkish market. And so that's... But it's, uh, do you know what? For, uh, of things I've done, I'm not actually ashamed of it. I've only watched it, like, twice, yeah. but I'm not ashamed of it. Okay. And that is a pretty high level in terms of someone with my self-loathing. Is it on uh, Netflix or Amazon Prime? Well, um, I don't know if anyone here knows what the biggest uh, film channel is in, in the UK. Of course, Movie Mix. Um, yeah, it's... Um, it's a Movie Mix channel. Yeah, recently it was on the uh, 4am slot, so... Uh, <laughs> and repeated at 11am as well. well, so very much for postal workers. If we can get every single person who listens to this to watch it, could could be a hundred thousand people could watch it. <laughs> it's all right. It genuinely, right. I think it's all right. It's not about. And Ben Miller's tremendously good. The one thing we found out, we had a, a brilliant uh, choreographer, the choreographer who also did Strictly uh, Ballroom and all Baz Luhrmann's films, and we had various members of the Strictly Ballroom uh, cast in it as well, uh, Paul Mercurio and stuff. And uh, what we realised was, you can't teach someone who is not a dancer how to be the greatest dancer in Australia <laughs> in four weeks. So a lot of the scenes where Ben Miller did some really amazing dancing that was beyond any imagination, we did have to cut those. We, we slightly overstepped the mark, going, I imagine he can be turned into the greatest dancer in Australia in four weeks. We'll cut the tap dancing. But he was brilliant. He, yeah. Ben Miller was absolutely fantastic. Well, what it. everyone who's listening or watching, if they, just the day this comes out, if they could go to Amazon or whatever site they want to and buy the DVD... Well, it's, really it's probably out. not... It's, yeah, it's yeah. not going to be... It's either going to be one of those ones that is available for 50 pence <laughs> or there's two copies that are available for, like, £98. <laughs> it's much like Donestel's autobiography. Yeah, so, well, have you, uh, I'd love to read Donestel's autobiography. You've got, have you got a copy of it? Yeah, 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 but I'm not lending it. Oh, it's gold. It is gold. It's, it's it. <laughs> Ain't half hot mum gold. <laughs> the, it is an amazing book. The... Uh, it's, it's, I know Arthur Smith's read it as well, and I can't remember. And it's it was called um, "Sing Lofty Sing: Thoughts of a Gemini," um, published by the Donestel Publishing Company. And it was my favourite <laughs> book when I used to do the book club show, where I read out from kind of weird books because 
it's written in this style as if basically Donastel, he starts, he sits down, he goes, it's chapter three now, about when I first met Windsor Davis, I'm in a very good mood. I'll have a little glass of uh, wine though, I think. Yeah, it was lovely meeting Windsor Davis, have another glass of wine, but fucking hell, I want to do another advert for chocolate bars, but Windsor wasn't up for him, a little bit angry about that. <laughs> and then by the time he's finished the chapter and finished the bottle of wine, everyone's a shit in show business. <laughs> I sell cassettes in supermarkets while standing in my pith helmet. Fuck a lot of you. And, and he repeats himself a lot so the three times he goes I always remember and I work with Jim Davidson and you think yeah so do we it was in chapter two seven and nine but it's it's really worth reading because know, it's to. a great warning about show business and why we should never have gone into it because <laughs> he does this thing sorry I just I told you I was really tired all day and now you're the first people I've met and I'm beginning to show off so it's um but what is great about the book is there's very little about all of the showbiz things he did and a great deal about trouble he had with his neighbours uh, <laughs> over the gravelling of a drive and problems with a gate. So it's, it's really... And, and it does kind of... It is almost, you know, somewhere between Tristram Shandy and Diary of a Nobody. Yeah, that's why I've, really, I've, been, I've read about it somewhere. Someone, someone wrote a fantastic blog about it. I, I met, I, I met Donastel at in Woolworths in doing oh. selling his CD well not his cassettes uh, it was that long ago and we just were all I mean it's was sort of I mean it is it is all about show business it's all about how you cope with the success and, and it going away I suppose and Don Estelle didn't cope with it very well in that he <laughs> carried on <laughs> doing his singing and wearing it is just he, standing in Woolworths in Western Supermare wearing a pith helmet and uh, I'm pretty sure we, we I've got a photo. We, we all went and just took the piss out of him. And I'm pretty sure we just got a, a photo of him going like that to us. He certainly did that to us. I don't know if I'm imagining the photo, but uh, we did. Uh, we were unpleasant to him. It is really, it is really sad in yeah. a lot of ways because it is, you know, he had this, these years with the Ain't Half Hot Mum and then Winter Davis, it turns out, you know, was a better actor. Um, yeah. Don, it turned out, was limited in terms of, do you own the pith helmet? Yep, we got a part for you. So it's like that kind of problem where it was more about the costume necessarily than his performance. Yeah. But it is, yeah, it's a sad book and I feel, I feel bad now in many ways of, of being derisory about it. Oh. I've heard it was quite big in Turkey. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> the book club show came out of you punching a melon representation, uh, a melon representing the head of Vernon Kay. Is that, is That's that, right, is that yeah. correct? That's right, yeah. This was about, what would this be, 2004, I think. And this is, because I, I listened to your Mark Watson uh, uh, recording. From last and week, yeah. The, uh, <laughs> put it out in that order. Yeah. And, uh, but when you said you've looked back because you're doing all your old stand-up yeah. shows and you go, yeah, many of these were great. I am very lucky because my first 13 years, I've looked back and they were awful. So there's no <laughs> bit of me going, I was robbed. There's me going, I somehow managed to survive. Uh, they're really terrible. But that first show that I thought wasn't bad, but a lot of other people were not like-minded on that, was um, the, the title was The Award-Winning Robin Inn, Star of the Office, Series 1, Episode 5, First Bit, right? I have a very small part in the office right, where I play a guy called Stuart Foote who's having a job interview. And I thought, it came around from, I was with um, Danny Wallace in, uh, in, in a bar, and we were looking at the Fringe brochure, and it just everyone, it, it's, you know, BAFTA award-winning, five times Emmy award-winning, and we were looking at this, and we were going, well, these people haven't won all these things. They might 
might have been partly involved with things that have won those, but unless you've actually got the award, yeah. you haven't won the award. So we started to calculate that if you just, you know, we were near, we were at touching distance of these TV and radio things, what our awards were. So it was going to be this whole thing about this guy who, which was me, but me, you know, believing that my work writing on uh, the Brian Connolly show was, you know, masterful. Uh, the, the fact that I did a musical with Sue Pollard, you know, what I taught her about. So this is all true, by the way. I really <laughs> did do these things. And, you know, work, work with Claudia Winkleman and, you know, what it was like sitting next to the plum-faced Mark Lawson when he was quite, you know, rude to me when we were reviewing Adam Sandler's Big Daddy. Um, but surrounded by... Andy Warhol-style images of Mark Lawson, Sue Pollard, and all of these people, right? And uh, I thought people would know that I didn't really believe I'd invented The Office because I once walked past a Staples with Ricky Gervais and went, <laughs> look at that bloke in there choosing photocopying paper. He looks sad. And then seven years later, Ricky Gervais wrote The Office. You can't help but see a pattern, right? So I thought these would be clues that this... And so when it got to the end, because I spent a lot of the show, I talked about when Ver Vernon Kay was very rude to me once. I was the last time I ever did TV warm up. Vernon Kay uh, was, he, yeah, he, he had a little go at me. I hadn't been funny enough about where people were from. Uh, <laughs> and Vernon Kay said something. Even the audience kind of thought it's a bit mean spirited. Um, so in the show, I talked about how Vernon Kay almost destroyed my life. And then the best way if Vernon Kay nearly destroys your life is to draw a little image of Vernon Kay on a melon and then just leave it on a windowsill in the sun. And as you slowly watch it rot over a period of weeks, it brings joy to your life, right? <laughs> and then right at the end of the show, I'd get all angry about the fact that things hadn't worked out for me because I'd been too busy writing links for Ben Shepherd on some kind of Channel 5 sports-based show, and I'd never got round to writing my great Ingmar Bergman screenplay or whatever, and I'd start to get really weepy, and then I'd grab the melon that represented Vernon Kay's head, and I would punch it and punch it, and, and, and I, I never got a right melon. I deliberately got... My, my wedding ring has still got the crack in it from over-punching the melon. And I would punch... Sometimes it would take a minute, and then the melon would explode, and I would then just stare at the audience and then start singing Mustang Sally. And just... <laughs> <laughs> then it would go into blackout and a lot of the audience left going I think he's had a breakdown now <laughs> and I thought it was a pretty good show you know yeah. and, the, and people who saw it they either really loved it or which was a very small number of people or left just thinking I don't know whether it feels sad for that bloke or just what a stupid that's worse than when we saw Donna Stell in Western Superman <laughs> you know but it was it, so, so I that, that was and partly in the show I also uh, I'd been recommended Sid Little's book Little Goes a Long Way um and I would talk about how Sid Little, a lot of his anecdotes kind of help you understand what it's like to be in show business. And there was this great anecdote, which was, and I would have kind of Philip Glass music or Elgar in the background as well. And I read this, there was a lovely one about, I'll see if I can remember, memory, it was, it was uh, I'll always remember the time uh, I met Cliff Richard. Uh, we went to, uh, oh no, I remember going around to Cliff Richard's house. Um, he, uh, he had curry, which was great. I really like curry. As does Cliff, I think. Which is nice, because like, it's Cliff's party. He probably does like curry. That's why he's ordered it, right? He goes, I always remember when I met um, Cliff at uh, an Indian restaurant called the Taj Mahal in Ealing. It was just after Cliff had had a hit with the song Little in Love. He walked in. Hello, I said. Hello, he replied. Thanks for writing the song about me. What, he said? A little in love. He did laugh. So it was this great kind of... <laughs> 
and it was, and in fact, that just that, that that sentence on his own, he did laugh. <laughs> and I used to have this big bit where I would go, so anyone out there who thinks maybe Cliff didn't laugh, let's be fucking clear about this. <laughs> it's a three-word. He did laugh. There's no debate there. And annoyingly, when the book was co-written uh, and rewritten as Little by Little, which is not nearly as good, if you if you see in a bookshop Little by Little, it's had a lot of the interesting idiosyncrasies removed. So what you want is Little goes a long way which is either 50 pence on Amazon or 97 pounds. <laughs> but I remember you, I remember you, were, you were in Edinburgh when we first did um, This Morning Rich, Not yeah. Judy, because you came and did a few of those. Yeah. Was that, was that the, you were up in 1990, I think, the first time you came, that must have been No, it would have been, I think the first year that I ever did a gig there was 1990, where I did a gig right. with a fantastic group called Mr. Trellis. Right. It was uh, Ardlo Hanlon and, uh, and uh, Barry Murphy, and, oh my God, how embarrassing, and, and the other one, can we dub that in? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, um, and I did a gig there, and then that was the only gig I did. And then I was, at that point, I was working in a place called Greyfriars Kirk House, just like kind of doing technical stuff. It's a, it's a play, it's a, one of those, sad, it's now an art gallery, but it used to be a hostel for homeless people apart from in August. So they turn up and they go, what? And they go, well, not in August. And so it's like really quite cruel. Yeah. And uh, so, so that obviously a lot, of the, a lot of the tramps would then write a show for the next year and see if they get to Greyfriars Kirk House. But... But it had an amazing... Owen O'Neill was on that year, uh, Earl Okin, Eddie Izzard, a fantastic act called Johnny Material. Yes. Uh, who now... Johnny Mears, who's now a children's... And Johnny Material was absolutely fantastic. And, uh, and so I was working there. And um, I don't know why I've told you this. Anyway, so I did a gig and that was ages ago. <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, that was, was, I think that, there was going to be a point to that. No, it was, that was the first time but, we went up. But then I think we did this morning not Judy in yeah, 90, I reckon it was 93 or 94. Yeah. Would have been about that. So you, you came on and did. I didn't know who you were. You came in. I think Stu, you'd met Stu, maybe had you? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd met in. Stu, and we started talking about unpopular independent movies from <laughs> New York, and we immediately bonded. But it took him twenty-five years to persuade me to like free jazz. The uh, no, you should really like it. It's just like there's no, it's just you know, eh, ooh, wah, eh. No one else likes it, but I, you know, I just, I do, yeah. So you've been going, you, don't know who it was, don't know who it was. That said little, I don't know who that was. Don't know, didn't, don't know. But yeah, I think you've, you've been going a lot longer than I think people would, might, might realise, though. I mean, obviously in the last few years. Not according years. to my agent, I'm 24 <laughs> years old and began in 2007. Um, yeah, no, I started, I, I, I mean, I, I started in 1992. I did So You Think You're Funny in Edinburgh, uh, and I got second place to Rona Campbell, as she was then, then uh, right. changed her name to Rona Cameron. And, uh, and that was amazing because it was like, I really wanted to be a stand-up. I've always been excited by stand-up since I'd seen like Rick Mail and Alexi Sale and all those kind of people. And, uh, well, in fact, in particular, Rick Mail and Alexi yeah. Sale, I think, yeah, that it was that last year when, when and I'm sure you've talked about this on the podcast, but when Rick Mail died, you know, when you have that moment where you've almost, almost forgotten how vital someone was culturally to you. And, and Rick Mail, when I first saw him do it, I mean, it would have been Kevin Turvey, probably first of all, and, and then, uh, and him turning up on the Russell Harty show, still being Kevin Turvey, right? And it just it seemed like the most exciting, Alexi Sale on OTT, the fact that mm. one week on OTT, this kind of te really terrible late night, partly sketch show thing done by Chris Tarrant, one week they'd have Bernard Manning, and the next week they'd have Alexi Sale, and it was just, and uh, I decided to go more the Alexi Sale route with the angry <laughs> Marxism, as opposed to the casual racism, followed by Dean 
Martin cover. And, um, and, what, and just, yeah, that, from that point onwards, the moment that I saw Rick Mail and Aid Edmonton, and there was, I was with Michael Legg when we found out Rick Mail had died, and it was, it was one of those things where it felt like if there was a day where Michael Legg, who I've been mates with for as long as I've been a stand-up, um, two 46-year-old men waking up, sleeping on someone's floor, deciding to have a cushion fight that becomes overly violent. He then smashes my glasses that pinged in half and has to lead me down to spec savers in the middle of Leeds, right? <laughs> to find some kind of monocle. And, uh, and then when we found out Rick Mel died, it was almost like, oh, well, this, he's the reason that we're also two 46-year-old men who, <laughs> even when, we, when we're on stage, quite often we pretend to be Daphne and Celeste and really scare people where... <laughs> When we were doing the Edinburgh, our Edinburgh show, Pointless Anger, Righteous Ire, and just two, you know, middle-aged men who haven't even aged well either, late middle-aged men, both of them with different skin complaints, suddenly leap on stage in this room that was entirely red and already the damp on the walls just there. And we're just like, oh, stick you, your mama too, and your daddy! And you see people going, I'm not sure this is for me, but I'm too scared to leave. And just kind of... All of those things, I know I do because I fucking watch Rick Mail, you know, yeah. that, 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 and that total commitment, all of those things. So that was, so, but then I started stand up in, yeah, 92, after So You Think You're Funny, and then I, kept, I, was, I, I managed to survive by living off, you know, predominantly kind of carrots and, um, and, and Bulgarian wine for about five years. Yeah. And, uh, and then, so I, I was going throughout the 90s comparing yeah. gigs and stuff. But I mean, all the stuff is really awful. And you were writing, you were writing for TV and stuff. No, I didn't get into that later. I started on the eleven o'clock show, which was a fantastic way of learning about writing because you would. So before I, I did writing on it, because uh, Dave Dave Gorman was script editing, I think the second series of the eleven o'clock show, and before I, I started uh, as a drunken bet, and uh, which didn't become a book. <laughs> the, uh, but no, Dave uh, and I was doing this thing where I would pretend to be John Peel talking about uh, meeting famous dictators and including Osama bin Laden long before he was you know I was very prescient in that I was going you know I remember the first time I was DJing at Osama bin Laden's house and uh, I'd uh, actually lost my stylus but uh, fortunately uh, someone had, uh, had just had a hand that was made out of an old coat hanger so we, uh, we managed to thin it down and uh, it rather actually destroyed my, uh, my copy of the undertones but uh, I've got more than one copy of that uh, obviously and uh, so so I'd just do these long rambles, which originally were filmed with me just doing long rambles, but they thought it would be a better idea for me to do it live in the studio with Daisy Donovan always interrupting at the punchline. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so that was kind of... Uh, and then they said, do you want to write on the show? And it's a re learning how to write on that show and learning that, you know, when you look and sometimes go, oh, those writers are rubbish, and they might be rubbish, but it's probably not what, you know, every single midday you'd go into the, the producer's office, one of the writers would go, right, it's your turn to go in and do the topical gags. And you would go through the gags, and then the gags that got the biggest laughs, there'd always be one person in the room who afterwards would go, yes, but I don't really think that's right for our demographic or for the people who watch 11 o'clock show. What, the funny one that we all found enjoyable? Yes. <laughs> We won't be. And so then you would, uh, each night, you would say to the writers, all the other writers, don't watch the show. For fuck's sake, don't watch the show because you would just hit this kind of level of melancholy, this level of nausea. <laughs> if, if you were, And then one act would, you know, one writer would, and they'd come in the next day looking all bleak. And we go, well, we told you. We don't watch the show. And it was, <laughs> but it was a good education. Because it was, you know. Yeah, but no, no, I suppose we went through some, we did weekending, which was sort of a similar, but not as quite high profile. We, we didn't like the 11 o'clock show because we were on BBC Two. We, I actually resented the 11 o'clock show because Channel 4 stayed so true to it. They gave it series after series after series, and the BBC then never did the same for us. We had to keep on coming back and begging. But, you know, it, did, it got. Uh, 
Well, you've got Ali G and uh, Ricky Gervais. Although well, was... lots of things that, and actually, you know, whatever you thought of Ian Lee on that show, I think Ian Lee could be very. When he did Rise, the Breakfast Show, yeah, he was. Although I remember going on that once, and he was a bit rude to me, and I said, "Well, it's not like when you were on the eleven o'clock show, and then when they cancelled it, and you used to ride around Crouch End on a pink tricycle, waving at people, saying, remember me, remember me.'" <laughs> and afterwards, the producer said, "I wish you hadn't said that because that was quite close to the truth." So it's one of those. <laughs> but I didn't know. I mean. <laughs> Only the colour of the tricycle was wrong. <laughs> or a puce kind of colour. Uh, but you, did you say, did you, meet, did you meet Ricky during that period? No, I knew Ricky when he was, uh, when he, when he was the manager of a... Uh, he was manager of uh, Suede and a Queen Tribute Act, but decided that really the money was in the Queen Tribute Act. <laughs> so... He was, um, he was the entertainment manager at uh, ULU, that was at the University yeah. of London Union. And the first time I met him, doing a gig for Avalon, actually, it was one of the, the Comedy Network gigs, and uh, we both talked about what the best lineup and pattern is in an episode of Celebrity Squares. <laughs> so we would go, obviously, middle square, Willie Rushton. <laughs> <laughs> and then we would, and we would go through, you know, top left-hand corner. That's your sporting novelty, but not not a wit like Henry Cooper. You'd have him, you know, middle left. Uh, I mean, you know, middle above or middle below. And so that was basically how we became friends. Was we would ring each other up, go, I've realised blankety blank the best lineup. So right, <laughs> and that, and then we just stayed friends. And then there was a point where I suddenly found out that he had become uh, tremendously um, famous and. Uh, we to torture me when I talked with him, which was a really bizarre thing where you, you don't notice when someone suddenly becomes... Because I had no idea. And then we were in Dunstable once. We were the first night of... of no, the, the night before, he decided that we should go to... Oh, where the hell was Lincoln. The day before our first gig, our warm-up gig at the Lincoln Theatre. And uh, then we got in this van, and it wasn't how he'd imagined it. I think he'd imagined a tour bus, not a kind of van. Yeah. And then he was really angry because it stank of dog shit, right? He was so angry that it stank of dog shit, right? Later on that day, we found out it was actually on his shoe, and he'd brought it into the <laughs> van, right? But, and then we just pulled over, right? He said, pull over, pull over. It's ridiculous. We need to get a hotel around here. I said, we've only got as far as Dunstable. Why don't we go back to London and start again tomorrow? He went, no! No, that's it. No, 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 no. We're doing it, right? And um, so we went and stayed, and he'd just done the Golden Globes for the first time. We just, I think, appeared one thing. And so we're walking around dancing with people just going, hey, do the dance, which was like, for me, a relief, because he used to be able to torture me in the street. But now if he tried to torture me in the street, someone would spot him and go, do the dance. He'd go, run for your lives. You know? And... Um, and, yeah, and then we ended up like in this hotel with basically, at one point, uh, he said, order some food, we'll get it brought up, right? And he said, I don't want anyone to know I'm here. So he hid behind the door when the food came. And then the bloke brought in the food, which had most of the things that were actually on the menu that said were in the food, not there. And, uh, and then he went, oh, can I have your autograph? And it's that embarrassing thing when you're hiding behind a door and you go, yeah, of course you can, there we go. So the... Um, <laughs> But you did a 2001 Edinburgh show with Stephen Merchant, Jimmy Carr and Ricky Gervais. Yeah. And you. And me. Yeah. Which is pretty much how there was a, a, a thing in, I think it was Word magazine, uh, uh, Mark Allen and Dave Hepworth magazine. They once did a, I think it was a long interview with Jimmy Carr. And uh, it had the, one of the, the publicity stills with all four of us. And it just, Steve Merchant, Ricky Gervais, Jimmy Carr. 
<laughs> which I really like because that's almost part of really where the, the award-winning Robin Ince came yeah. from because I'm, I've never had a big enough ego I've, I've found it much funnier to be and some bloke some bloke who's probably just come up to mend the balcony they're on and happens to be snapped <laughs> while he's next to these showbiz greats at least they didn't cut you off though they could have cut you off that, like that. I think cut you off is probably better isn't it to, to, to actually know uh, he's there but I can't see him it's surely worse and just snip him off it just says unknown that's, yeah, that's yeah, the worst yeah. like sometimes you get those old photos of like revolutionaries yeah, okay, yeah, they'll yeah, mention yeah. three of them don't know who that is don't know who yeah, that is if any of you know who this person is please email <laughs> the word subscription there was a lot of you know if you'd known at the time how much money the people in that show were going to be worth in within but 15 you see, years time Rick and, Ricky and Steve had already done The Office yeah. and it was the first series was going out at that time and Steve Merchant is one of the best stand-up comedians I've ever seen I think if you've never seen it, it, it and he does another but I don't think maybe I'll never do another tour but it's just every single night I would just watch his set and it was it would stay almost exactly the same but there would always be an, another nuance or another and it was this beautiful beautiful thing about this bloke coming on with a lot of high status saying he's the best comedian in the world and by the end of it going don't tell anyone you've seen me I'll say you were lying I <laughs> don't come up to me at the bar and say well done it could have been worse just leave me alone right he would do this whole and he's just six foot seven the whole look of him there and then he'd storm off stage and then there'd be no one on stage for about 20 seconds then he'd walk back out and he goes you can't get out that way and it's just everything about it was and I would, I, I think in terms of tears of laughter, he's kind of up there with, with watching Laurel and Hardy's County Hospital, right? It's just, he, and I, I, what used to be really joyous about watching Steve Merchant on the comedy circuit as well was some comics didn't get him. They just didn't understand what was going on. And so once you were unable to breathe and truly asthmatic from the experience of watching him, you'd then turn and see a comic going, huh? and then you'd fall through a door. I mean, I did. I once fell through a door watching Steve Merchant. He was just fantastic to watch. And, you know, Jimmy was very much Jimmy. <laughs> so I'll talk about this because I'm, I'm getting tired and I want this to go on for a long time. So I'll talk about this while I'm still... If I fall, yeah, if I fall I'm asleep... I'm brief, am I? If I fall I'm asleep... Really sorry. If I fall asleep, just carry on talking. Don't take it personally. I if really you fall asleep, I'm going to carry you away like <laughs> cannon and ball. You know, that bit where Bobby's asleep. The wind beneath my wings. You have said you are giving up doing stand-up comedy. Yeah. And this is your last stand-up comedy tour. Well, not exactly. For a bit. For a bit, yeah. But do you think that's a good idea? I mean, like, isn't the thing that you just do... Like, you, when you tour, you tour about five shows... So you're, you're inevitably going to go, oh, stand-up, I don't like stand-up. I'm doing... doing it's not that I don't like stand-up, though. I love stand-up. Yeah. I think stand-up is... Uh, it, it, it can drive you insane. I mean, I think the person who's most worried is, is my wife. Because, you know, my, my touring uh, kind of schedule is, is, is very good. For If you live with a really annoying man, there's nothing better than him often being in Stoke-on-Trent or Belfast. <laughs> and so I was out... I think I was in Australia, and she rang me up. She went, what's this about you giving up stand-up? I went, oh, well, it's just... Uh, I said, well, why didn't you tell me? I said, it'll be all right. I've got other ways that we can make some money. It's not... She went, no, but I mean, why... And she, this was the one she found out because she saw a piece in The Independent, which is not how it should have happened, right? But I'd, <laughs> I'd written this blog post, and then The Independent had gone, well, if we put, add some other sentences, that can be some journalism. And uh, <laughs> so... 
I reached, and eventually I went, look, everything's going to be fine. And I felt, and then I went, I know, I've realised what this is about. This is not about a fear of, you know, how you and our child will survive. It is you going, you're going to be in the house the whole fucking time. <laughs> and between seven and ten, you'll have all the adrenaline you normally have. You go, look at me doing voices. Look at me doing voices. Imagine if Stuart Lee was James Bond, you know. Just... <laughs> But you do do like a ridiculous amount. I mean, I remember doing a gig with you in um, Shepherd's Bush, where you were in the middle act in Shepherd's Bush. I was comparing, and you'd come from you done a, the open slot in Cambridge. <laughs> you don't even drive. You can't yeah. even drive. Uh, you, you'd driven. You'd got a train to. I mean, and then you were going off after the Shepherd's Bush to do a gig across London. Yeah, that's insanity. How it would double up between Cambridge. and Shepherd's <laughs> It's like a long way. But it is, I, 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 it's a bit like, it's like with Edinburgh, right? The reason that I would sometimes do, and you do this in Edinburgh, right? I, I, sometimes I would do four shows a day, four different shows, and then friends for uh, shows for mates as well. And the thing is that what else are you going to do? Because when you're younger, you think, it's stand-up, you kid yourself, and you go, well, I don't need to do anything today because I've got work tonight. And then you would go and stand in a Firkin pub for 20 minutes with your ride take on Baywatch or whatever you were doing in the early 90s. And then you'd go, well, that's a full day's work. And then you get a bit older and you do, I think Mark Watson mentioned it on your podcast. Uh, the, um, I love Mark Watson. Yes. obsessed with that podcast. <laughs> but you do, you know, you, you, you think, well, life is, I think life is finite. I think existence is finite. And it's much better to just try and do loads. Of, I mean, I do think that's why I'm giving up stand-up for a bit, is actually, in the end, you do go, that was a bit much, wasn't it? <laughs> and you do find yourself... Yeah, it's. It's. I mean, I. I, I don't know what's going to happen. I've been doing stand up since I was twenty two years old, so and it is like an act of trepanning. It is, you know, the, the the day after the election, and I'm, you know, all cross and kind of, and I'm playing Horsham that night, where fifty eight percent of the population there voted Conservative, leaving eight thousand to vote UKIP, <laughs> and you have this, and which was not in my audience, obviously. My audience is like hundred and thirty people going, don't. Tell them we're here, and the uh, and you have and you can go out on stage and this rage, you know, all that like all the shows that I do with Michael, which are entirely, well, hopefully on most nights, just made up on the actual night, just yeah. dicking around, and to lose that kind of, you know, the 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 drill into the skull to go I can let these it, things out. But it seems to come a little bit from disillusionment about tour. You know, you you will say as I think. We're in a similar position with touring, you and I, I think, in the, the, and it's quite a rare position because most people can't tour. Most comedians can't tour because they're not well-known enough at all to sell any tickets on, the, on their own name. And then most comedians who do tour are so well-known that they'll get thousands <laughs> of people or hundreds of people coming to see them. And you and I are in this kind of middle bit where we might get 50, we might get 500... Uh, and there are places we go where it's 50 people. Yeah. And you've travelled, usually when the one you've travelled the furthest to. Yeah. So you've driven... Or it you've was Annick that did it for me. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was Annick where it's a lovely venue and I knew I'd been back too soon because I reckon once every like 13, 14 years is probably... <laughs> that's enough. And then on the side of the theatre, in the actual auditorium, are these big paintings of Tommy Cooper and Eric Morecambe and other people who had tremendously successful careers and would never have ended up, one, in Annick, and two, in Annick playing to 50 people, right? And it's a really lovely venue, and I'm not, you know, in that way, they, they like, backstage, they go, we've just left you a whole cake. And that's the... 
Um, and so, but you then the next day there's roadworks, and your friend is dropping you off to get that pre-booked train to Newcastle. Uh, you don't get there in time. But then the man goes, you have to pay 121 pounds for a ticket, and you think I played to 48 people in Annick, and this is, and you you think I'm going to die running back of this ridiculous <laughs> man running across trying to get to his train with his his deodorant flying out the back of his rucksack and various different notes, which if read appear to be kind of you know <laughs> songs that Jeffrey Dahmer would have written or whatever, and it's just. <laughs> And so all of those those things, uh, and and I thought I'm just going to give it because no one thinks in any town. One, no one goes. He may never be back again. You know, I played Leeds six times last year, Manchester about eight times, and then you know, and if you are in a smaller town, a smaller town it really only wants to see someone like me once every three years. That that's more than enough. So I thought if I take three years off. Yeah, I, I might. There's a possibility I'll go. Fucking hell! Why don't I ever do stand up? Well, I was a waste. I'm really enjoying myself here. You know, this this is a nice Waterstones to work in. <laughs> They've given me a nice section. You know, <laughs> every now and again, someone goes, "Oh, you sound a bit like that bloke who used to be on the radio with the Pretty Scientist." You know, all of those things. <laughs> so, but I, I I I have to. And nearly every stand-up said to me that they give me about one month of, of yeah, not doing stand-up. I think stand-up. you might find it different. I mean, I, I just it feels to me you do so so many different shows that maybe if you, you know, just, it may be not the opera, it might not be stop and go, it might just be, let's turn the volume down a bit. It's not like people, I think people tend to do this with it. People do something t- too much and they become unhappy with it and they think, oh, because uh, happiness is the opposite of unhappiness, me doing the opposite of what I'm doing mm. will make me happy. And actually, that's like saying, oh, this TV volume's a bit loud. I'll mute it completely. That will make me happy. You know, it's actually just a matter of turning the knob a little bit and, and working out what you can do. Because if you're doing all those little towns... What an like, old television you've I, got. <laughs> or I'm just it. sitting there, not uh, even yeah. near the telly. Yeah. <laughs> Living my incredible dream from all the repeat fees from the 11 o'clock show. <laughs> but there are enough tiny... There are enough of those... I mean, I go to Cumbria... Uh, once a tour, probably. <laughs> and I play a different town in Cumbria yeah. every time I go to a, a general ambivalence. <laughs> but there, there are enough towns in Cumbria, you can go there and you'll be in that town once every six years. There are enough towns, and, and no one will ever come and see me, but there are enough towns in the country that you can go back every now and again. I, I think it, what's, I think is, it's, it can be dispiriting because you can look at other people and go, oh, wh- why are they getting 500 people and I'm getting 50 people? But then I think you always, and then you'll get that on Twitter, you'll go, oh, you know, there's still tickets available. Yes, I bet there are still tickets available. And you kind of go, you know, I wonder if you could sell 50 tickets in any town <laughs> and how long those 50 people... You know, the idea that 50 people have paid 10, 15 pounds to come and see you is sort of quite... Inc- when you look at it the other way, it's sort of incredible. Oh, no, and I think- to those 50 people... Because they, you know, they they won't get they'll get the the big names coming to somewhere near them, but they won't get an esoteric weird comedian coming. And for those fifty people, it's almost more important, isn't it? Than, than well, no, I I think that that's why if I take a bit of a break, I think I'll be. I mean, I was you know some of the places that I've played in the last few months where like one venue in the in, again in Cumbria actually, which I played quite a few times, probably too many times. The lowest <laughs> audience I had. But the loveliest audience, they were all, the, you know, I, I know some of them by name. Some of them say things to me like, would you like to come and stay in our cottage when we were away? It's on the side of a lake. Someone had um, brought me a cake, not just a little cake, a great big bloody cake, right? Yeah. On the box outside, it said, just a menace. And then I opened it and it was a picture of Sheila Hancock on the cake done boss-eyed because they felt she was overly cruel to me when I was on just a minute. <laughs> now that, you... And I do think this is in no way that, you know, in a lot of the places that I play, the people that I, and I, I love talking most, it's like 
some of the stadium comics that I know and arena comics, they look at their audience, fucking hell, God. And, and they're all bitter. Bitter about going, fucking hell, do you know what? I think I'm only making a quarter of a million for doing my hour tonight, right? Um, and they don't like their audience. Whereas the 50 people who do turn up in whichever Cumbrian town we're playing that particular year, yeah. they're really nice people. And they want to talk about stuff. And, they do, and they'll bring you things. Oh, I found this book that I thought you'd like. I mean, the cake thing I really like because this person obviously also doesn't know that I use the train. So I then spent the next two days with a rucksack on and a satchel carrying a cake carefully, you know, cause which I quite like. Or maybe she did know. <laughs> Sheila Hancock wrote to me and said, make him a cake. It's just the kind of idiot that will think I better carry it all the way home. But that's, that, that, so I think all of those things, it, a lot of the time, I think you can, you, it's very easy to accept that, like, so, like, I was watching the brilliant band Giant Sand, just the footage of them at uh, Glastonbury. And they're a great band and they've been going like 30 years, whatever, and, and incredible albums and the, watching them at the park stage with look like about 40 people. You think, but nevertheless, the 40 people, at, and I've always found whenever I've gone to see Giant Sand live, that you can kind of talk to anyone who's there because, well, we've all got a lot in common. We have a lot in common because we like giant sand. Yeah. It's not like if you were at, you know, a U2 gig or something. Oh, we've got a lot in common with all of these, you know, we like giant sand and therefore, and that's also, I think that's almost what a lot of stand-ups are. Like, because even though there are lots of nerdy stand-ups who are into horror movies or whatever and into weird bands and stuff, when we were at school, we might have been the only one who wrote to Boris Karloff's widow to get a signed photo, and uh, which I've lost. I don't know where it is. If anyone knows, I'm quite annoyed about that. You know, it's an 11-year-old boy finding out that there's not that many Karloffs in the London phone directory at that point and making a guess. Um, all of that. And so you then have to go, well, we've always been a little bit on the margins anyway. So what on earth is ever going to make us the kind of people that... 20,000 people ago. I imagine that'll be entertaining in this particular aerodrome. <laughs> so but that's a good thing then, so that you do, you're doing something that's, you know, you've self-created something, you're doing it in your, in your own, uh, by your own... Uh, um, <laughs> doing it on your the own... Wind beneath <laughs> my wings. You're doing it on your own terms, you know, and, and, it's, uh, and that, there's something amazing about that. And then if you're getting that personal reaction, what about those people who make, they're making cakes and they're leaving them sadly Exactly. Out, sadly it's brilliant. Out. For the birds, because Robin Ince isn't coming to eat his cake this year. <laughs> we did the whole cake like a melon with a case face on it. And we used his real skin. The, uh... No, I love all that stuff, but that's why I think if I take a couple of years off and, and uh, I'm thinking of writing a couple of books that aren't going to get published. Yeah. And... Uh... <laughs> and making a film that's not going to be big in Turkey. It's going to be quite popular in Cyprus, a little bit more niche. Um, but I, so I, I think it's, I don't want to lose the excitement that I have about it. I mean, I, someone who I saw, did anyone here see Jim Dale the other week? Has anyone seen him played the West End? Do you saw him? What did you reckon? I thought it was fucking brilliant. It was, right, Jim Dale, nearly 80 years old and uh, best known in this country for the Carry On films, but in, in, in the US, Broadway star, the first ever Barnum, you know, he's won Emmys and Tonys, and he went on, and you just, you know when you just sit somewhere, you go, this is the greatest night, it's just one bloke at a piano, and him talking about that moment in his life where, he was, do you remember the town he was from in Northamptonshire, I've forgotten, it, it's, um, it's, it's the same name as uh, one of the writers from the Carry On, Rothwell, I think it is, Rothwell, right? 
And he says the first day he goes to work and he's been to musical and he's seen it and it's fantastic and he's just up against a brick wall and he's going to be making shoes and there's a big bonfire burning bits of shoes and he turns to the old bloke who's there and says, oh, what time did they like that? And he said, oh, it was about 38 years ago, I think. <laughs> and he went, I'm leaving. And he left. He went, I'm going to make it in music hall or something. And for two hours, he's on stage with the two things I saw that week was I watched Jim Dale and I watched a Laurel and Hardy double bill with just a whole audience that were just pissing them. So yeah, and with my favourite line for Laurel and Hardy, which I used to put into stand-up with audiences going, I've no idea why I said that. Hard-boiled eggs and nuts. <laughs> why didn't you get me any candy? Well, you haven't paid me for the last lot. But it's, uh, it's just... And, it's, and you watch, I was sat next to Johnny Vegas and we were back, who'd, who'd grown a little Oliver Hardy moustache just for the night, which I thought was absolutely <laughs> right. And I'm, I'm wipe, properly wiping it at the moment that Oliver Hardy's having the greatest time ever in hospital. He's loving it. He's got his leg up. He's just, he's reading a book and then he hears Stan whistling and he just goes, <laughs> closes the book, flips it off the bed and 20 minutes later, of course, the surgeon's going, both of you get out of my hospital. <laughs> and watching those two things, which are as, you know, they're filled with fucking love. You know, what Jim Dale had was, and everyone that I knew, uh, uh, like, there was a nice work because Barry Cry was in the audience and uh, I think I read that joke. And the, uh, <laughs> but he was, it was actually, Barry was in the audience and Lionel Blair was as well. And afterwards, when, when Barry, was, I was chatting to him outside and he was going, oh no, Lionel Blair's here. I've been trying to avoid him for five years. I love a show is spat that's, that's all down to I'm sorry I haven't a clue and all that stuff but that kind of a, bloody old Blair's here he's gonna kick off he's wearing his tap shoes already the, uh... but yeah I just and, and when you watch things like that that's why I don't want to go out I never want to go out on stage and again Rick Mail is another good example of just utter fucking commitment you know I think more and more the older I've got every single show I want to pretty much be hoarse by the end of it I want to make sure that I you know they might the audience might hate me but it's not due to a lack of my showing off and being ridiculous yeah <laughs> fair enough um, I forgot to say even though I said I wouldn't forget I forgot I should have said this in my opening monologue uh, Ewan McInnes do you know Ewan yeah yeah, yeah. he's on a <laughs> he was on a Rehef for a Hef thank you uh, I, I praised Ewan McInnes's lack of commercialism he's uh, he's now using this series to again promote his book Edinburgh for Everyone and his up and coming book for which he has no title clearly he still lacks commercialism that was what I was meant to say to him uh, and uh, Paul Craigie uh, has got a question for you he paid £60 to ask this so make sure you answer it okay if a question has no definitive answer why bother asking it that's a much better question than one with a definitive answer. How dull is a question? 1873. Whereas if the answer is, well, there's a few different ideas currently about this, and then you go on about it's a much more, you know, the moment you realise that there is almost no definitive answer in everything, before Brian Cox goes, well, actually, in physics, fuck off. You've only got, about, you've only got one law that's particularly thorough. A lot of the rest of them are up in the air. And, uh, <laughs> but it's... That's why it's more exciting to ask that question because then you can sit around and everyone has a different answer and some of them you'll think they are dicks and I will no longer <laughs> hang around with them and others you will go yeah not bad good answer uh, are you aware of Dirty Brick Com Confessions the website Dirty Brick Com no. Confessions 
I can't believe you're on. Johnny Vegas is, has no entries on this, which is kind of, I, I think he's one of the sexiest guys in uh, comedy. Uh, Robin Inso, I consider one of the least sexy guys in comedy, has a lot of answers. Uh, I'll just show this to the people at home. Uh, they can see this. Uh, someone has said, this is people. Oh my God, that's is, me topless backstage is. at uh, the Larn Festival where at the Larn, there was a hen night in. Josie Long and me were doing a show and we always get a lot of hens and stags, obviously, because that's very much our, our, our demographic, <laughs> right? And uh, so... At one point, I, and they were lovely head night, at one point I, I said, obviously later on I will be loosening the cardigan. And, uh, and then I took the cardigan off, and then right at the end I thought, well, in a moment of Morrissey-esque ridiculousness, <laughs> I, will, I, I just ripped off my black shirt and threw it into the head night, and then uh, Phil Jupe just, just looked at me afterwards, and he went, you've ruined your brand. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this uh, website has people's sexual fantasies about comedians, British comedians usually. Uh, they, this first, uh, they're anonymous. This first person uh, says, that shirtless picture of Robin Ince is the best thing that's happened to me and my sex life in the last months. I wonder where he's serving and how long that <laughs> sentence is. Interesting that you feel it's definitely a man saying that, but I think it is. Yeah. Uh, um, so let's have a look. Uh, I, someone says, oh, I, always f I find this stuff really kind of creepy and weird. Yeah, that's why we're doing it. I am in... I am this in, was such a lovely conversation. I really, you know... Just, sorry, we'll just, this will be over in five to ten minutes. <laughs> I'm in brain love with Robin Ince. That's kind of... That that's nice? fine, that returns to kind of the trepanning thing. Yeah, that's true. Or that scene in the film Hannibal. Uh, Ray Liotta. Just see how interested you are in this one. I wish Robin Ince wasn't married. I'm pretty sure I'm about half a bottle of wine away from stalking the crap out of him. It's getting a bit much. I recently saw him at the Arts Emergency gig at the Hackney Empire, and I spent the whole time he was on stage just imagining us together. Rough, sweaty, perfect. Mmm. See, the only time I'm kind of rough and sweaty is when the stepladder's a bit rickety when I'm carrying a lot of the heavier books up to the high shelf. That's when I... God damn it, why do I buy so many 1930s encyclopedias? <laughs> this page is good. Uh, I, uh, this is a good one. I have this fantasy where I walk, on, I walk in on Brian Cox giving Robin Ince mind-blowing head. <laughs> this is nice. You're the postman, not the letterbox, so that's good. It's just and the they, uh... immediately afterwards as he then goes, Oh, the art. <laughs> And as they see me, Robin says to Brian, go and put that perfect mouth to good use. <laughs> and we end up having a threesome all centred around me. <laughs> Was that Jim Al-Khalili? <laughs> <laughs> Would you be up for that if... You, if Do you know what? I'm very much up for basically getting an allotment. Yeah. That's what I, I just... Would you be up for this? I would like... This is quite a, uh, a full-on one. I would like Robin Ince to come all over me and then lick it all off. <laughs> Seems like a punishment. It's really weird that, that... It's only right at the end that the true Richard Herring appears in this podcast. There's suddenly this <laughs> demonic revelation. We're nowhere near the end. So, um... <laughs> <laughs> Did you read Stuart, the ones from that? Uh, I don't know if I did. I don't know if I, there is. There are some that have, of both of us inevitably. I don't know if I have done it. I've done two with him, but they've both been sort of themed around our DVD, the DVD, or the uh, the lack of a DVD in the end of this morning. Richard not Judy, but a fist of fun. You can buy fist of fun. There it is. 
but gofasterstripe.com where we can also buy Robin Ince DVDs if you were so willing to do that. <laughs> <laughs> They're good. Uh, so, um, uh, are, you, are you still vegan? You went, you went vegan for No, a I did vegan for about a month and a half and yeah. then uh, I, I might give it another go. I thought it was quite, you know, it was an interesting thing to do, but it was, it was, I think the second day I was at Birmingham Airport, which it turns out doesn't have a really good vegan selection. <laughs> And that point of going from every different and looking at everything, and then the last thing would always say, and some milk or a small <laughs> amount of sheep's blood or whatever. Everything that, why do they need that to make these particular biscuits? Just to fuck off vegans. Yeah, it really felt very spiteful. Yeah. And then I eventually found a slightly out of date cup of leaves that boots do. And obviously, because no one's bought a cup of leaves, apart from obviously every time just their update, the one vegan that comes to Birmingham <laughs> Airport goes, the cup of leaves. And as I ate those leaves, I thought, I don't know if I'll get into this for two, three years. Yeah. But I'm, I'm going to try it again. I think that's a very hard thing with touring, is doing that kind of thing. Well, and just anywhere, veganism is insane. <laughs> no, but I was vegetarian for like 12 years, and it was hard enough. I mean, it's easier now, I think. Well, vegetarianism is quite an easy yeah. thing to do now. But uh, veganism, I think, is... I like the idea of... It's like, a bit like giving up stand-up. It's kind of that experiment where you go, well, I don't have any religion, so how can I punish myself? <laughs> um, you know, veganism feels like that kind of... I love chocolate. I love milk chocolate. I don't like dark chocolate. Well, maybe get that out of your life. You love doing stand-up. Why not stop doing that and just eat dark chocolate on a bench <laughs> near your allotment? <laughs> But you gave it drinking for a long time, I see you're drinking I did now. drinking for a year, uh, stopped drinking for a year, and then Michael Legg was the one who made me drink again. And that was that was kind of one of the reasons I thought I should give up stand-up for a little bit. Uh, Michael Legg makes me feel like that as well. There's, yeah. there's, some, there's some comedians you watch them and go, they're so good, I'm going to give up stand-up. And then there are other comedians you think, they're so bad, I'm going to give up stand-up. I'm just, it's just a little joke. <laughs> just a little joke. Very... The, uh, but, uh, so we, when we were doing the angry show, about halfway through in this red room dripping with sweat, he just went, oh, for fuck's sake, I can't work with you anymore with you being sober. This is fucking killing me. So he charged off and he got two tins of red stripe and he started his and he left the other one on, on a stool. And I thought, well, what shall I do? And then I spent quite a lot of time telling the audience about issues that I'd had with drinking and, you know, problems and stuff and creating this level of melodrama and going that I felt a little bit bad. And they, I think they kind of believed me as well, you know. And I said, no, no, but we have fun with the show anyway. And then, you know, and the, Michael knows that the, there's been some problems. And then about 15 minutes later, I just grabbed the can and ripped it open and just drank the whole thing. And I thought, I've turned down really lovely... Like, when you do go drinking with Brian Cox, Brian Cox goes, you must try this wine. And, it, and it's like... It's fucking the great, you know, it's, it's made in the Large Hadron Collider. Individual grapes being sent round and colliding with each other to make all of these things. And, uh, oh, and, the, uh, and, uh, and I turned all that down, but thinking what will be the best moment in front of an audience? Well, I better start drinking again then. And so that was it. And then he kept deliberately buying me different drinks every single night. And then I... Now you're an alcoholic? No, 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 but there are... There's human mints in my drain again, just after it was clear. <laughs> Kentucky Fried Chicken, that's what you're going to say, that is. That's a, that's a little uh, serial killer reference there for you. Fans of serial killing. That's what um, uh, the one who worked at the DH, DHSS... What, Dennis, Dennis Nielsen? Dennis was, Nielsen, yeah. when they found uh, body parts... No, he yeah. said, well, he knew they were going to come and check the drain, so he started flushing Kentucky Fried Chicken down 
so that he could claim it was all Kentucky Fried Chicken that he'd been flushing down. That would have been fantastic, though, if that's... For a while, surely one of the newspapers would have believed that was the Colonel's secret <laughs> recipe. And they would... <laughs> to defended a man over there. Yeah. He's, he's managed to sit through the rest yeah. of the whole podcast. I'd say he's ruined the <laughs> civilised delight of eating from a bucket. <laughs> ruined murder. The murder... My bride's head revisited nights as I sit there like Sebastian Fly eating from a fucking bucket. Dennis Nilsson was quite... Out of all the serial killers, he was the funniest serial killer. <laughs> he was the... F- he was, uh, when he, he was interrogated in a cell when he was smoking and, and he said, what should I do with the cigarette end? And the policeman said, just throw it down the toilet. He said, I got into trouble last time I did that. <laughs> And one of his victims uh, had a tattoo across his neck saying, cut here. And so he did. So, they, you know, that's... It's weird, isn't it? They don't concentrate on his wit. They? <laughs> they <always seem> to... <laughs> so, well, you do, I mean, you do all these uh, science. You've done the, what, the incomplete map of the cosmic genome? Yeah. What the hell is that about? Genome. I'm in that. that was, uh, you are in that. <laughs> what yeah, the hell is it's, it? Uh, <laughs> um, it's basically just, it's a bunch of scientists uh, and uh, people who are interested in science or people who are backstage at one of my gigs. Um, we <laughs> film them and ask them questions about if they're scientists, why they do the work they do, what particularly drew them to science stuff like that so it's lots of it's basically it's an app and uh, it's just there's, I think there's we've managed to fill the whole kind of periodic table now with different people and we're now going to do a kind of uh, rotating uh, double helix of different people as well but it's just the idea of basically I'd started to make some money and I thought well this app I could put money into that and that will lose a lot of cash and it did <laughs> so it's kept me as an artist you yeah. see every single time that there's a level of comfort that's, oh, Eddie Izzard once gave me the advice he once came round to my flat many many years ago and he saw that I had an airing cupboard and he said you shouldn't have an airing cupboard that's too much as a comedian that's too much comfort which I just loved the idea that what drove Lenny Bruce damp towels you know it's the uh, so yeah that was uh, so no. yeah do you feel like obviously you've done the infinite uh, monkey cage uh, and then a lot of these things well Brian goes on to do things on TV with Dara Brain, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah do you feel that that's do you feel slighted by that genuinely I mean I know you make jokes about it but not really I, don't, I mean Dara Brain does actually know physics yeah, I mean yeah. I think on television they want another person who knows something whereas on radio they want a kind of idiot to put the brakes on every single time it becomes too convoluted or confusing and I play that role very well in the same way as Dara plays being learned very but well but you're very you know you know a lot about this stuff as well yeah at a very surface level I mean I don't really I, I don't have you know I, I'm fascinated by all these ideas and I love you know to get the chance to sit around with some incredible you know some of the people that you say oh yeah whether it is Brian Blessed or whether it is Sir Paul Nurse who's you know this great kind of you know he's fantastic Sir Paul Nurse I think I told that story where I had a lovely evening where you, when you're actually hanging around with a Nobel Prize winner, you think, I really normally feel like a fucking idiot, but now I'm in a new level of, of stupidity. <laughs> and then you see that Nobel Prize winner unable to work out how a taxi door opens. And you kind of go, there was a purpose that I evolved as well, and that was to go, it's like that, Sir Paul. Thank you. And that's it. You know, I've, um, so uh, that chance, and it's a very, I, I find it really genuinely very, all, again, I think it comes back to all the things that I find most exciting, which are, people who are really passionate and I think the people on our show who guest on the show who are best uh, are people who they really want to talk about why they've gone into whatever particular you know whether it's epigenetics or whether it's particle physics quantum cosmology whatever it might be and 
and it's and what I love as well is sometimes when you've done some of the science shows at Christmas, you've done a lot of the science shows at Christmas, and some of the scientists will sometimes go, well, I don't really know what I should do because I'm not very funny. And you go, well, you're not really meant to be funny because there's lots of people like Richard Herring who will be doing the funny thing. They'll be doing their Ferrero Rocher routine, <laughs> and which is a very good routine. And then you, Richard Dawkins, will go on and talk about spider's webs. <laughs> Can I do some cock gags? You can do a couple of cock gags <laughs> as long as they've been peer-reviewed via Richard Herring's talking cock book. I've read it cover to cover. The, uh... Do you think it's possible to be too clever and know too much stuff? I think it's possible to believe that you're too clever. I think that's, you know, a different... I, I don't know if this... I'm, I think the moment that you start to be excited about knowledge and knowing things, there is a point where that is going to increase, you know, existential angst and, you know, fear of, of you know, finite nature and all that kind of thing. But I don't think it's a particularly agonising... I, I once did a thing with it. Will Self was on, I think it was Loose Ends on Radio 4, and he'd just done a documentary with Carl Pilkington. Carl Pilkington interviewing people who are really clever and saying that it's probably ruined their lives, it's better to be a bit stupid. And Will <laughs> He just sat there went, I mean, he's just an idiot. <laughs> and, I, and he looked genuinely frustrated and possibly angry. But even, I, I think he probably knew it was kind of a reasonably comedic documentary, but still, I mean, he's so, he was a really, you know, Will Selford is angriest, cutting away at his cock and balls to write another short story. The, um, and, but uh, I don't think it is possible, but I think it's possible to be very arrogant and believe that you... I mean, that, that moment where you just go, oh, bloody hell, there's so much to know. And you just, that's one of the reasons I'm stopping stand-up again is I just want to... Because, as you know, you get asked to do... When something happens in the news, oh, hello, Richard Herring, uh, we're from a radio station and we'd like you to talk about this. And you sometimes think, well, it's, it's good publicity for my show in Cumbria, but at the same time, <laughs> I don't really have any interest in this. And suddenly, uh, you know, it's like question time and you see comics on question time and some of them can be very very good on it but comics have that ability to have an appearance of knowledge and a confidence as they deliver what inside they're going I have no fucking idea if this is true I have no idea if this is about strange quarks charm quarks I don't even know what a fucking quark is but as long as I keep talking and looking like this people go he's very wise on quarks you know so that, I think that's one of the you know, the dangers of that's not realising you're a fucking idiot well maybe it's probably most I mean a lot of people that you get on TV are just good at talking you know experts on anything are just good at talking about well the thing things. I would say about Brian Cox is he really does love those things he's not faking it he no. doesn't uh, you know there was like photosynthesis bloody hell did he bang on about that for ages it was like <laughs> he didn't like biology but once he found out there was quantum behaviour in photosynthesis every time we were in a minibus there we go and the thing is you say oh I know but that's great it's like he doesn't just go I know loads about physics and look at this great hair which some people are now saying they believe he He's deliberately dying grey, bits of it grey, as if to give him this hint of alluring mortality. <laughs> Is there a God? And if not, where did all this stuff come from? <laughs> which God do you want? I don't know. I don't mind. I just want to know which one. Well, I'd like to know which one. I reckon it is. it's Odin. I reckon yeah. if you have to, I, I, I'm quite keen on Odin as yeah. a god. So I think if I'm gonna, if there's any god, it's Odin, and he's yeah. not happy with you, Richard Herring. No, it makes sense. The, I mean, I, that's why I, I, going back over my many shows, the Hercules Terrace ones about the way that the Greek and Roman gods at least make sense of the universe, because there's because it doesn't make sense that one god, a perfect god's made an imperfect world. I don't know if that's even possible. If something perfect can create something imperfect, but with the Roman gods. 
gods, it might make sense, doesn't it? There's all these competing gods and stuff goes wrong because they're all trying to fuck each other up and they're, and they're childish and they're like dicking around with people. That kind of makes sense of the world. Well, those, uh, that's what I think does. is a really intriguing thing. about. I, I do find it harder and harder now when I have had to go to churches or the other day I had to go to like a religious school and there is just that little moment where I see the crucifixes up there and there is something inside me which goes, I don't mind, you know, it's not, I, I'm not, I don't have a problem if people have got a kind of nice little liberal belief in deities or whatever. There's a bit where the older I get, the more I go, this is really fucking wonky. This is really <laughs> bizarre to me that this is still there and I love Quakers and I love you well I love the Unitarians most because I've done a few Unitarian gigs and the fact you don't even have to believe in God to be a Unitarian <laughs> the fact it's that loose which is just we'll just meet up you know and then <laughs> just be nice okay be nice that's it and I, I did one of their gigs where I was the warm up to their, their service right so an hour long warm up before then and they have hymns which are basically hymns about and then humans built a machine in 1742 and <laughs> It's all these things about how to, you know, the ploughing and ingenuity, looking through a telescope, seeing the stars. It's a big, big universe. And so, and the, their reading was from Dennis Potter's Seeing the Blossom. You know, today's reading comes from who's, I'll do the part of Melvin Bragg. And, uh, and that, but when I did it, they borrowed someone's Baptist church, and just before I started, they went, "We will take the cross down before you go on, because you never know; it might get into the papers in Hove." So, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so so Odin is. Uh, okay. But I do find it. I, I I don't have a problem with it, but I, the older I got, the the more I find it. But the, th the problem I have with the Big Bang, and I talked at some length in one of my uh, other shows about this with an expert on the subject. But I don't understand where, where the what was there before and where that came, where did the super but that's the bit that becomes from. really difficult is the fact that there are things that we are not really I've imagined it's very very hard to imagine there was a, a well to even say there was a time when there was no time yeah so there is no universe there is no time there what is no time place was it there is when no there was, when there wasn't any time what was the time it was just before time <laughs> just before so then, right. One second to there being time, two seconds before there would still have been some time. Exactly. No, there's no time. <laughs> there's no time. Marcus Chow said he got very angry with you. For <laughs> the, the, um, but that is, uh, that, and I think that's kind of delightful and very, uh, I mean, my son now, who's seven years old, he's begun to think about these ideas of Big Bang and how it might have worked and whatever, and, you know, you have these questions. And I still find the idea of, the billions of years that you have laid out behind you and then the possibility of, well, the fact that, you know, this, this solar system only has a certain amount of time. That moment you go, oh my God, there's only 4.5 billion years left. And you kind of <laughs> almost go, oh, bloody hell, that's not far off, is it? And then you go, oh yeah, except all life on Earth and all the whole kind of existence of the planet Earth and the sun, that happened over 4.5. This is probably still quite a lot of time, but that idea that's I, those moments where like evolution like the idea of self-consciousness i find self-consciousness such uh, most animals just get by with having no idea they even <laughs> exist yeah they eat and they fuck and they try and survive and then somewhere along the line we start to recognize ourselves in a mirror and then the advertising industry <laughs> so it's you know it's it's kind of it can be it's it's a problematic thing it is I just want the answers. That's all I want, Robin. That's, you know, just you're the same as the religious people because they just go, just say, oh, it happened. And then a magic thing happened. <laughs> that was it. It's just the same. It is the same, actually. Is that was same. a very convincing argument. Thank you. I will, um, 
I'll ask you one more question, and then we'll go. Because, you know, people will have missed the emergency questions, and I think you'll be good at this emergency question. If you, I'm, I'm just slightly adapting. If you had a finger that could travel through time, but just your finger, what would you do with it? Where would you go, and what would, you, where, what would your finger do in time? Past, future, present, not probably not worth doing present, but it would be able to travel in time and space, so you could do something in the present. I would send it to Galileo's recently removed finger, which is okay. still in a museum, and the fingers would meet. And then in years to come, people would believe I'd prescient, presciently <laughs> imagined the future of the South Bank show. Okay, yeah. So that would be... <laughs> you could create, and then you could walk past that and then do, put that in your show. Yeah. Say, and I created the title of the, the South Bank show. And then I'd end by punching a melon that represented Melvin Bragg's face <laughs> before breaking into Dancing in the Street by Martha Reeves and Vandellas and get some very poor reviews again. <laughs> well, I hope you will come back to doing stand-up. But if not, not if you don't want to. No, but I really like... There's no negativity about stand-up. It was just that point of, I think, I overdid it. Yeah. I've well, been showing off for a long time, and it was time to have a little bit of a sit-down. definitely over. You do a lot. You do too much. And it is really hard. And I think as you get older, it's really hard. It's just the travel and everything is wearing. Though I, I sort of enjoy the shows much more now when I'm... I love that. I, I, I don't yeah. think I've ever enjoyed stand-up more than I do now, <laughs> which is typical, because that's the way it always works, doesn't it? Oh, I really miss that. You know, again, it returns to that idea, which is everyone is looking forward to something and everyone is remembering something fondly it's only when you're there that it seems shit you know that's the and I actually though at the moment in touring and I, and I think I'm getting better as a stand-up you know I don't think I'm certainly not as bad as I was in 1997 I mean I have some bad nights that's the thing as well that ability where you go uh, as long as you, you know when you're having good shows and everything's bright, you think oh, I love stand-up and then you have one that's a bit even a little bit bad just but just something went a bit wonky. The audience didn't even hate you or anything like that. It just wasn't... Good. And you go, I'm fucking useless. Pathetic, isn't it? Well, pathetic. Yeah. Sitting there, everyone sat there going, stupid old man. Whereas now they're going, stupid old men. You know, and that's, that was one of the reasons that I decided to give up was basically just the kind of the Waldorf and the Statler in my head were getting so loud. And I thought, like, when I was out in Australia, I had nights... I was out in LA. We did a, a, an American tour of the Infinite Monkey Cage. And there was a night where... Round at Eric Idle's house, right? Eric Idle, who fucking Eric Idle, and just having dinner with Jeff Lynn and Steve Martin, <laughs> and I just sat there going, what "The fuck am I doing here? This is ridiculous. This is uh, I should be back in Berkhamsted at the moment. There's, I wonder what's in Oxfam. I don't know if this is right for me at all. <laughs> I'm really worried. I feel under a lot of pressure because there's fucking Steve Martin there, isn't there? This is uh, am I eating this in the right way? Is Eric Idle judging me? It's, you know, all of these things. What's what's really on the inside of Jeff Lynn's dark glasses? All of these, that, and to have that moment of going, I'm not sure I should be, be not 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 sure I should be there because they're all great. Oh, they are. I mean, that's a, but the other side of it, going, I should probably be at home. Actually, I, do, I just shouldn't be. <laughs> doing this silly and yet I'm meeting people who were my heroes yeah but it, it, you know I think if you don't feel like that that's when it's a problem I think you know I think the people who don't who get into those situations think yep I should be here uh, you know oh no but it's not it's a separate not being here it's I not it is, one obviously I'm there going I shouldn't be here because no, these people are but it's the other bit of going I probably shouldn't really be touring at the moment I probably should be at home I should pick my son up from school yeah you know that's it's all of that those those kind those of things those things are very important and it, you know and it, I felt much the same when I worked with Sue Pollard <laughs> <laughs> still one of my favourite moments I did a uh, it was the play was called what's it called That Showbiz and uh, it was uh, written by Jimmy Perry and on the first night it, on, on the run through it turned out it was about six and a half hours long 
And so they had to cut <laughs> it very, very quickly. So no one knew who was on when, which scene had disappeared or whatever. And this wonderful moment was Sue Pollard singing a sad song about love. And that's why he loves me. Fade out. Walk off stage. Where's my fucking costume? <laughs> Still mic'd up. An absolute delight. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, he's worked with them all from Super. Yeah, I wish I hadn't said the bit at the end because it now looked like I was showing off, but it was meant to be, but it's, it can't cut that bit. No, no way. No, no, no. No, I'm going to, if we cut it, I'm going to get everyone in the audience just to tell everyone that you said it. Which bit do you want to cut? Just the bit about, because now it feels like being a wanker, just going, no, oh, I, I was in a. I was in an amazing place and I met some well if we do cut it Ben will be glad because it's near the end so right. makes, he's very lazy yeah. it, makes it, easy, <laughs> it makes it easier for him because I kept it all secret for ages because next that night I wanted to fucking tweet I'm in Beverly Hills I've just been in the Hollywood fucking hills I sat there and I watched Jeff Lynne and Eric Idle play the banjolele while Steve Martin applauded right and none of them knew that George Formby was given the order of Lenin by Stalin so that was my that was the, those you know that bit where you go I don't know what I've got to add to this. I wonder if Steve Martin, the Banjolele fan, <laughs> knows that George Formby was given, and that's genuinely true, the Order yeah. of Lenin by Stalin. He also didn't know that John Paul Sartre had very, very beautiful blonde yeah. hair. You know that bit where you got emerging, right, I'm with a philosopher, get me Jean Paul Sartre's beautiful blonde hair thing, right? Jean Paul Sartre was a little boy, has, as you know, not a great face, not a great, you know, and, uh, but no one realised he had this really lovely curly blonde hair. And uh, then when his mum was out, his granddad went, you look too girlish, we've had enough of this. Took him to the barbers, uh, had all his hair cut off. And when his mum came back, she basically went, ah! <laughs> right, seven years, she's gone, my beautiful angel. Gone, what the fuck is that? <laughs> went upstairs, didn't come down for two days, and thus existentialism. <laughs> so <they're> just... <laughs> but now, if we have to cut the other bit, we can't put that bit in either. So you haven't been very helpful, Robert. No, I make it more difficult, which <laughs> yeah. is... Make so, it, that, that's, <laughs> making it more difficult for 25 years. <laughs> so we're not going to cut it. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a massive round of applause for Robin Ince. You have been listening to Richard Herring's Let the Squad Theatre Podcast with me, Richard Herring, and my guest, Robin Ince. The music, as always, is by Pest, if you can call it music. It's just bang, 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 as far as I can hear. Thank you to everyone at the Leicester Square Theatre and Go Faster Strike for all their assistance in making this. Also, thank you to our producer, Ben Walker, who I'm very indebted to. I'm also indebted to Ian Messiter, the creator of this podcast from its early days in the 1950s. This is a GoFasterStrike.com fuzz and sky potato production for the internet. Hey there, thanks for watching this week's episode of Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre Podcast. There's no more of it. If you don't want to see me speaking anymore, don't watch this bit. This is just me doing some speaking. If you don't like that, don't watch this bit. I'm just, I'm just, that just to help you out, you people at home. Uh, so the, uh, this week's episode has been partially sponsored by Jean Power, or Jean Power. It could be, it could be a French man called Jean, or a UK woman called Jean, or, you know, a UK man called Jean, or a UK, or a, a French woman called Jean as well. I don't know, it could be anything. And it's like, it's J-E-A-N power. Uh, and what he or she wants me to say, I'm going to say she. Oh, and Mitch, I know all about you. 
If you've enjoyed these, go to gofasterstrike.com slash badges. You can pay a pound a month for just a one-off donation or more than a pound a month and help us make more internet content. You can buy a DVD at gofasterstrike.com. Go to richtang.com slash gigs and you can find out where I am gigging and come, maybe come to London. Here's the Les Square Theatre to see me do one of my 12 shows uh, that I'm doing throughout August and September here. Or come and see one of the Square Theatre podcasts, lessersquaretheatre.com for all the information about that as well. I am indebted to the following people who helped us to pay for filming the podcasts. They are Matthew Smith, Ewan Duncan, Rob Applin, Darren Foote, Colin Anderson, Raymond Harpany, Kevin Tipcorn, Steve Mash, Dean Ratland, Gaynor Wilson, Adam Queck, Stuart Fawcett, Tim Turner, Julian Benton, Thomas Baldwin, Lauren Pilkington, Matthew Blackburn, Neil Martin, Jack Burton, Fraser Levy, Gina Lynn, Paul Jeffrey, Rob Ward, Robert Tang Richardson, Leo Vagoda, Carol Forster, Iki Kawa, Colm McGonagall, Aurora Watters, Jake, Heather Henderson, Simon Carl, Christine Sato, David Collier, Jijin John, Roy Owens, Matthew Poynton, and Ian Seckington, MEP, MEP, could be MEP, could be MEP, or could be Ian Seckington, MEP, if he's an MEP. Richard, Richard Grundy, Thomas Phillips, Alex de Jong, Matt Lehay, or Lehay, or Lehay, Alex, Mark Saltmarsh, come off it, Charlie Carrick, and Emlau, or Emlo. Who knows? Thank you to you all. You will be rewarded in heaven, which does not exist. <laughs> <laughs>